Have you heard the adage? I read this this week. I'm not sure I'd ever heard it before, but it kind of rings somewhat true. Here we go. You ready? Um, There are old soldiers, and there are bold soldiers, but there are no old, bold soldiers. Never heard that. It expresses an interesting sentiment, though, doesn't it? There are old soldiers, and there are bold soldiers, but there are no old, bold soldiers. Well, uh, it's true, it kind of has a kind of a kernel of truth to it, since the majority of the bestowals of the Medal of Honor, the highest award for valor in America's armed forces, are posthumous, typically. But does even that kernel of truth have any place in the Christian walk? I'm going to submit to you that not at all, okay? In fact, I'm going to submit to you that we all want to be bold soldiers, okay? We all want to, um, um, if, if I am following Christ, then this earthly life or a long earthly life is not necessarily the ultimate goal, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not my goal. Uh, what my ultimate goal should be, and I believe the book of Acts bears this out, is eternal life for me and to take as many with me as I possibly can. And that requires some boldness. So we're going to look today at a story from uh, the first chapters of Acts where um, they're asking for, they're acting boldly and they're asking for any, uh, even more boldness. Now, uh, if you were to back up, uh, I think John was in, in uh, Acts 1 and 2. If you, if you survey Acts 3 uh, from about 3.1 to 4.31, which is right before where we'll be today, the chain of events are like a two-day time frame, and we're not sure how long after the day of Pentecost that was. But um, the day of Pentecost certainly is talked about in, in Acts 2. Uh, at the end of Acts 2, it talks about how the church kind of did business. Uh, the pattern of fellowship that developed talks about everyday fellowship, daily fellowship. Um, and we're not really able to know how long a time to kind of uh, elapses before the events of chapter 3 and 4. Uh, it just says, and then one day. So we really don't have a clear picture on how long that's going to be, but let's say it was weeks later, there is a healing that takes place in chapter 3. You can read about it in the first 10 verses or so um, by Peter and John, who literally, that, those famous words that, that Peter utters, he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee, rise and walk, to a guy who had never walked in his life. He was lame from birth. Uh, and so that begins what I believe is a pattern of what Jesus predicted in John 14, 12 as being the greater things that, that uh, the disciples will do after he's gone. And uh, here's just kind of one of the first of them, at least, that's talked about in the book of Acts. We can figure there were other things that took place, but maybe this was the first miracle by the disciples after the resurrection and the ascension. Now, if you read on in chapter 3, um, it took place right in the temple precincts, which would be right under the noses of those who were in charge of all things religious. And so uh, it resulted 
Firstly, in an opportunity for Peter and John to teach in the temple precincts to those who were gathered there. So Peter preaches in three a gospel message, but that message didn't sit really well with those who are in charge of things. Uh, with the priests and the Sadducees and the, and the Sanhedrin. So they arrested Peter and John and they held them in custody to answer the Jewish authorities the next day. So we know they were in jail at least overnight. And so, like I said, this kind of spans a two-day period. And so um, when they gather them then uh, together, the question the council poses to the two of them was pretty straightforward. And I want you to think about it for just a minute. They, they asked them, and this, this comes about in 4.7. We're, we're going to pick up our study in 23. But in 4.7, um, they're going to ask, by what power or what name did you do this? Whose name did you use to heal this man? Okay? They could have hidden under, you know, the floorboards, or they could have told the truth, and they told the truth boldly. Uh, the bold response by the two, by, by Peter and John, it, um, and they were, um, I'm going to give you some verses to look at in just a minute. They're going to tell us about this. But the boldness of these guys said, you know what? This is Jesus doing. And he's gonna, they're going to indicate, and by the way, if you want to check it out, the guy that was healed is right over there. He was standing there. Now, I want you to go with me. We're in chapter 4 um, already. I want you to go with me to um, what I call the money verses of chapter 4, okay? You know what I mean by money verse? These are like, they, they really bring it, you know, okay? So let's read three verses. They're going to be actually previous to what we're studying today. Somebody read verse 12. There is no other name. 412. Isn't that beautiful? They kind of get it. Now, do you, you ever hear somebody talk about, you know, the disciples really didn't know what they were doing and, and uh, uh, you know, this was all made up generations later. The disciples knew exactly what they were doing here. Okay, somebody go back and read verse 13. They... What did they notice? They're un uneducated Galileans and they're speaking boldly and the only thing they could come up with as an answer was, these guys must have been with Jesus. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm at risk of stealing my own thunder so I'll stop right there, we'll move on. Somebody else read verse 21. The third kind of money verse from chapter 21. Chapter 4, I'm sorry. They decided to let him go, uh, and uh, they and they were just they're scratching their heads over how are these people reacting to all of this adversity. They're praising God for what has happened, not only the healing but um, uh, even the persecution. So I, I find it really intriguing here. Um, uh, these things that are going to take place prior to our study that's going to begin in verse twenty-three. Um, um, 
And, and, uh, and by the way, as they're dealing with this, uh, the man who had been healed is standing right there with them. What happened to you? Well, let me tell you what happened to me. Okay? Now, um, William Barclay, in his commentary, uh, says this, and I, I want to I file it away in your brain right now as a backdrop to really our entire study of the book of Acts, but certainly in the study of this particular chapter. He's going to say this. The question most unanswerable, I'm sorry, I can't read my own writing. The greatest and most unanswerable defense and proof of Christianity is a Christian man or woman. The greatest and most unanswerable defense and proof of Christianity is a Christian man or woman. In, in our context in, in Acts 4, it is, you know, I don't know if Jesus is alive or, or dead, but I know that Peter and John think he is, and they just healed this guy. It's their life that is the greatest proof of the message of the resurrection. It's what they're, not only what they're doing, but how they're acting, how they interrelate. Um, Jesus is going to predict in John 13, the world is going to know that what I'm teaching is true by the way you love one another. So this kind of uncontestable truth of Christianity is your life. Now, if you're like me, that kind of raises the temperature a little bit. Turns the heat up, doesn't it? I've got to kind of think about that. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin with verse 23, and let's just read 23 by itself. And then, Bob, I'm going to come back and have you read 24 through 30 in just a minute. But let's go to 4, 23, okay? And by the way, verse 22 that we skipped right over right there just says, this guy's standing there, and he's 40 years old. He's of age. Uh, this is not a kid. This is not, you know, it's, it's not somebody who could have made something up. Here, here he is right here. All of them know him. They've seen him all their lives. And here he is standing among them. I read this story again yesterday morning, and I was reading of how he, uh, when he was first touched by them, he hopped. You know? Have you ever gone to a two-year-old and said, can you hop on one foot? You can't do that until you're two, I think, something like that. Do you suppose Peter and James said, can you hop on one foot? He was kind of dancing. This is uncontrovertible evidence that something's going on here. All right, let's look at verse 23. I'm going to read it from the American Standard. When they had been released, now think about this. Peter and James have been in the Huskow overnight in the Gray Bar Hotel in the Slammer. You know, my dad had lots of names for, for you know, Gray Bar Hotel. You never heard that one? They've been in, in jail overnight. They went to their own companions and they reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. I think we've got to park here for a little bit on what they did immediately when they were released. Uh, thinking it was me, I would have probably run. And I hit. I don't want to get, go back there, right? But at this time, okay, the first, this is the first, here's what I want you to put in the blank here. This is the first recorded persecution of the church. It's just occurred. 
And it follows the first miracle. I find that intriguing. That, boy, they're, they're shaking things up. We're going to see how much they shake things up here in a little bit. But they're shaking things up. And immediately, persecution begins in the form, in this case, of, hey, you guys are going to jail till we figure this out. And so they're released from jail. So what do they do? What they do? They went to the church. Okay? Now, what, what I'm going to submit to you is that what they did was a little bit counterintuitive, but it's exactly what they should have done. They went to the church, and what they shared was their problem. What they shared was the issue of their lives that they were dealing with. You guys, and they, and they, they didn't mince any words. They didn't hide any of this. I think if I'm Peter and John, who are among those who are leaders now in the gathered church, which is now about 5,000 um, men and their families by now, if I'm, if I'm going to them and I'm, and I'm concerned about whether or not your discipleship is going to last or fail, it might be that I would sugarcoat it just a little bit and say, you know what, that just happened to us. You know, I'm kind of Peter and this is John and uh, it, it's probably not going to happen to you. It just happened to us, right? They didn't do that. They didn't try to pull the wool over anyone's eyes about what's coming. In fact, my prediction is, as Peter and James shared their story with them, they said, hey, we've been looking for this to happen. It's happening. Okay? Second thing that I kind of want to notice here, want us to notice here, that I think is really, really important. This is just kind of open sharing. Um, they didn't run and hide. Um, they didn't go, if I think, find it uh, equally intriguing. They didn't just go immediately back to preaching. They went back to the home church and said, well, let me tell you what's going on. They share their issues with the church. Now, I find it kind of intriguing throughout 38 years or so of ministry that what I find often happens and it's just a mystery to me. When people are going through something, the thing they most have a likely have, have likelihood to do is withdraw from the church. Well, this is horrible. I just couldn't couldn't go to church today. Or, uh, you know, I just couldn't share that with my small group. Do you realize how counterproductive? It might be intuitive, but it's counterproductive. Don't we kind of have a tendency to take our pain and want to kind of suffer in silence um, even where this body of faith is concerned? Here's your friends. Why wouldn't I share it with you? But don't we have a tendency instead to kind of pull the covers up over our head and say, you know, I'll be back to church when this kind of blows over. Which leads me to a question that I left also on your page. What's the opinion of the church that was held by the earliest disciples? Certainly at the end of two, we're going to see it also at the end of four. They had all things in common, it says. They shared not only their victories, but their burdens and their trials. 
do you get the impression here by, by just this one verse that we've read that, that James, I mean, that uh, Peter and John have an affection for the church, have a support of the church? That's a rhetorical question, kind of. Do you have a sense that, uh, I kind of get the sense that there, here's a church that they have helped start It's the gathered church in that day. Uh, and, and they've helped get it going. And I, I get the sense that if anyone, if anyone didn't need others, I suppose it would have been Peter and John, right? And yet, we find them going back, reporting in. There's a kind of a movement afoot that's really disturbing to me. And it, it comes out of somewhat of a of uh, younger folks and somewhat not, but uh, there's just kind of this movement that seems to be present where, you know, I'm just going to kind of beat up the church all the time and I'm not sure I really need the church. I can be a Christian on my own. And there's kind of uh, some days, actually former students and et cetera, that, that just kind of grieve me or just beating up the church on a daily basis on Facebook. And I find it intriguing here that two of the original 12 who started the church still are supportive of it. They're still needing the church and reporting in. I, I, I just want to kind of file that away before we go on to verse 24 and see what happens next. They go back. They report. They don't spare any of the gory details. And they don't just go back to preaching. They're going to do that. But they want to share this with the church first. Now, Bob, can I get you to pick up in verse 24 and read down through 30? Okay, now what has just happened? The first miracle since the resurrection has taken place, all right, since the ascension has taken place, there's kind of this first miracle, and it was, and what ensued after that was the first bit of persecution. Peter and John are, are uh, imprisoned for a, a bit. And so they hear this, and as they hear it reported to them, the gathered church does something interesting. They call a consultant to come in and ask him to figure it out, right? I don't think so. They, they sat down, they decided to choose 30 people, and they had a brainstorming session for the next couple of days. What are we going to do? No, I don't read that either. Now, they might have done some of that but I don't, later, but I don't read that there. They, they don't uh, you know, take out an ad and say, we are still pretty good people over here, you know? They don't do kind of a, uh, a public relations campaign. 
What did they do when they, it just says, when they heard this, they what? Prayed. Okay, guys, that's not rocket science. But it's what we should do. Am I right? Uh, what they did, their first reaction was to pray. Beginning, actually, with praise. And they were praised, the, the praises that they offered were straight out of Scripture. They were straight out of um, the places like Exodus 20 and Psalm 146. They began to pray God's Word right back to Him, praising Him. And, and I, I find it interesting, if the, if the A part of 24 is that they prayed before they did anything else, then the B part of that is intriguing to me. What did they pray? What did they begin with? Kind of worship and praise, yeah. And I wonder if, I wonder if, um, uh, kind of what happens here in 24b as they begin to kind of say, God, you are, God, you are, you have, you have done this, you've done that, talking about creation, etc. I wonder if it's an affirmation as they begin to pray that God is truly, always, in every situation, in control. Think about it for a minute. You, you catch that as, they, as you read the second half of 24 and then and we'll go on in 25 and 26 in a minute, which are quotes from the 146th Psalm. But uh, isn't it interesting that, um, uh, actually from the second Psalm here, but um, isn't it interesting that they, as they begin to praise God, as they begin to pray and praise God, they're praying about God being in control. <laughs> that ought to be a comfort to you and me, I think, shouldn't it? Now, Trick question, as they quoted from Psalm 2 in verse 25 and 26, who composed this passage? Let's read it. Okay, let's read it again. Uh, this trick question, I'm going to go to verse 25. If, you, if your Bible's like mine, it's kind of set in, um, in, in large letters. That means it's a quote from the, from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples divide, devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, or against his anointed. Bob? That 25 uh, and 26, it's almost like today. Oh, it kind of is. And, and I'm going to make that point in a minute, because I think this is going to be comforting to us somewhat. But who kind of originally spoke this. Okay, if according to uh, their prayer, it's a Davidic psalm. It was written, penned by David. But who gave David the words? The Holy Spirit. Okay? Trick question, I realize. But I've got to recognize here that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David said this at a difficult time in his world. And now they're repeating it back to God at a difficult time in their world. And I wonder if we ought to repeat some of these kind of things at a difficult time in ours. Okay? Now, let's, kind of, let's parse it a little bit. Um, it, it's kind of interesting here. As, as we go on and as they, as they begin to uh, say this, they say, they're saying here, and they're quoting the second Psalm, they're saying, who is all this done against? Was it done against Peter and John? Against the anointed, in, in some translations you're reading. Uh, in mine it says against the Christ, that's Jesus, right? 
This was all done not against Peter and John. And all they're talking about before, uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection, that kind of thing, that was done not hidden, but predicted and against God. I've got to kind of come to terms with that just a little bit. Now look at verse 27. I want to read it again. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Now who is the you here? It, they're praying to God. This is still part of the prayer. Again, uh, Against your holy servant, that's the Lord's holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, God anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So the idea here is clear that it was the Gentiles, and you could put in parentheses there the Romans, who had the political power of the day. It's clear here that according to their prayer that the Romans were persuaded by the people of Israel. It was, it was that kind of combination of folks that had crucified the Lord's anointed. Okay, now I'm making a point here, so hang with me. It's clear here in their prayer, they're saying, there were those who gathered who seemed in charge. And it was the Romans who were incited by the leaders of the nation of Israel. Okay, let's read on in verse 28. To do whatever your hand. In my Bible, the word your is capitalized. Your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, I think it's interesting here that if I'm reading this right, it's here that even in the worst crime in human history, the crucifixion death of the spotless, holy, innocent Lamb of God God was not out of control. Even in that heinous situation. Look over at, uh, turn back, if your Bible's like mine, you've got to turn back one page to 2.23. This is in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This man, he's talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter's being consistent here with their prayer once uh, they've reported this in. It's clear here that God had not lost control of the situation at the crucifixion. Now, several books that are popular in the last century or so have proposed that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus were reactions by God to a situation that had kind of spun out of control. The resurrection being God's attempt to make the best of a bad situation. When I look at Acts 2.23 and what, we're, what they're praying today, nothing could be further from the truth. God had anointed Jesus for the purpose of saving your soul according to the book of Revelation, according to other places, from before the foundation of the world. The Romans thought they were in control. The Israelite leaders thought they were in control. For crying out loud, Judas probably thought he was in control. But this was part of the sovereign will of God. Now that raises all kinds of questions that we won't get into today. But it does cause me to think about how out of control really is my situation in that context. Look at verse 29. 
I think it's interesting, in the light of all this, in the light of this first miracle, and in the light of the, the persecution that's going to begin, and it's going to get worse, uh, after, the, um, after that miracle, the persecution that begins, what does the church pray for? Don't answer it yet. Look at verse 29, but don't answer it yet. Do they pray for protection? I don't read that there. Do they pray for a new government? A lot of us are praying for that, okay? Do they pray for a new government? No. I find that really intriguing. It could, by the way, by the end of the book of Acts, you know who the emperor was in Rome? Nero. Could it be any worse? Okay. Are they praying for a different government? No. What do they pray for? I find this as intriguing as all get out. This is the this is kind of the money um, application of this whole chapter. But what do they pray for? Boldness. I just find that kind of amazing. You could argue that what they ask for is more of the same. You could argue that okay, Lord, if this is how it's going to be then help us stand up under it when it happens again. When persecution happens again. The next time I'm imprisoned, may I be bold. The next time I've got an opportunity to witness in your name, may I be bold. It's just amazing. I want you to go on a, on a brief sojourn with me. Go to 229. I want you to hear how many times in the book of Acts they ask for boldness. 229. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. That, the, the idea is the context of confidence. Look at 4.13. We read it just a little bit ago. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them having been with Jesus. There's, there's a confidence there. Go to chapter 9. We'll read verse 27 and verse 28. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. This is, he's talking about Paul. And that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. That's Paul doing that. All right, 1346. There is a common theme all the way. And I've got, there are a dozen different passages which talk about this. I'm just bringing out five or six of them. Um, 1346, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first. And then on to 14.3 and we'll go back. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Okay. So it sounds like what they needed to pray for is what they should have prayed for. Not for protection. But they're praying, Lord, when we get right back in trouble, may we be able to stand up under it. Am I the only one catching this? This just seems intriguing as all get out. Lord, when we get in more trouble, help us to be bold. I just think it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Look at verse 31 and we'll close out, okay? Somebody read what happened after they prayed in verse 31. God answered their prayer. He gave them a 
backbone of titanium. By the way, I was talking to Pete yesterday and uh, my father-in-law, and they have replaced a knee that they replaced 15 years ago. Okay, so that's the deal. You know, that shouldn't have to happen to anybody, but it occasionally happens. And he really wanted his titanium knee that they put in before. I said, Pete, did you, get your, uh, did you get your knee back? No, I forgot to ask him before I get, it was too late. You know, I expect him having a jar on the, on the mantle, you know. He's got, a knee, he's got a knee now that I think is a plastic knee instead of a titanium one. But these guys in chapter 4 are praying for a backbone of stainless steel and the Lord gives it to them. That ought to tell me something about what kinds of prayers the, the Lord answers positively. Yeah. Yeah. We have become a nation of wimps on all kinds of issues, not just that one, huh? Now, here's what I want you to put in blank. By the way, I missed a blank, but that's okay. Uh, but I want to include it there. The call is for miracles, as they close this prayer, for miracles to be done in the name of Jesus. Now, what happens when they pray is that the place where they were meeting was shaken. And this word shaken here has both literal and figurative meanings. Now, I put a couple of references here. There's one place where it says this place was just torn apart. And that wasn't talking about uh, a literal shaking of the rafters. Uh, that was in verse 17, chapter 17. In chapter 16, um, there is an, another earthquake that actually uh, gets uh, Paul and Silas out of prison uh, and all the other prisoners. You read probably in yesterday's paper about um, they restricted water well infusion in wake of the Cushing quakes. Can I tell you what? What happened in Acts 4 has nothing to do with fracking. <laughs> Can you set your minds at ease there? All right. Um, what happened, the Chile thing this week that was horrible, this right here doesn't have anything to do with some man did. The place where they were meeting was both literally and figuratively shaken. They're going to begin to, everywhere they go, shake up the world. And the idea here is that the Holy Spirit visits them and it changes them. It makes them bold. Now, I want to give you a few words to just write out beside this. This, this shaking here in verse 31, the Holy Spirit's visitation on them was personal. It wasn't just that he appeared in the room and shook up the room. He came to Joe and he came to Darla and he came to Mary and empowered them, emboldened them. It was personal. It was constructive. You ever thought about an earthquake that was constructive? Most of them aren't, right? This one was constructive. It's to build up. It was empowering. And if I read it correctly in chapter 16, one of the next times we see an earthquake getting involved, it was liberating. You know? These guys from that point on were bold, my friend, as lions. Because they asked God in the face of persecution to make them bold. Now, here's my question. Don't have an answer for it. You got to fill in the answer. You ready? If you were to pray today for boldness, 
Where do you think God would want you to utilize it? That's where I want you to start thinking about this. If you were to right now, right now today, between now and the beginning of the service that you're going to attend today, or, uh, you know, by the time um, the end of the service comes, before you leave the church today, if you were to pray for boldness, where do you need to be using boldness? Okay? I can't answer that for you. In fact, I'm asking, in the process of asking that question for me, where, Lord, do I need to grow a backbone? It might be surprising to you if you ask him that question, Lord, give me boldness, how he will fill in that blank. It might be surprising. It may have nothing to do with what's in the paper or on Fox News. It may be something totally unrelated to politics and all those kinds of things. It may be the neighbor across, have to do with the neighbor across the street. It may have to do with the person who lives across the fence from you. It may have to do with the person in line with you at the grocery store this week. It may have to do with uh, your least favorite coworker at the office. Where, if you ask for boldness, where is he going to give it to you? Where does he most need it in your life? Where do you most need to grow a backbone? Okay, next week, we're going to see Peter with this somehow new grown backbone get after it in Acts 5. Okay, so read ahead on Acts 5, first several verses of Acts 5, and that's where we'll be. And we've got to close out. I'll see you next week, okay? Thank you.